bacon, jalapenos, an olive, and a bean. And that's a Caesar. With bourbon. Mmm. The onion ring's gonna be real good. December the 9th and holy shit a new week for everybody new starts new beginnings new weeks you know how we do this um where do I start I don't really know I'm just going to flap my meat mouth and see where it ends up but uh been having a lot of fun yesterday was a really nice chill day and uh I was kind of roaming around the warehouse listening to my wicked ass headphones and uh, a couple of the guys tried to say hi to me and I just totally didn't even notice they were there or around me I didn't even think to look up because my I was just so immersed in my music and uh, can I just talk about that can I just talk about how wicked music is and I know you might be like oh my god we get it Amy yeah there's some great songs no you don't understand like I listen to music and I just feel it in my bones you know what I mean like I get that goosebumpy feeling and I get sometimes my throat wells up because I just cannot believe what I'm listening to and just the the amount of skill and and talent that has gone into creating and composing this melody and this piece of music and it just oh it's amazing to me so when I hear a song I really like and now I'm hearing it at a quality I don't think I've ever heard it at before um, it's just, it's a different experience. Um, so yeah, I listened to music <sighs> from the moment I left my home yesterday, pretty much until the moment I got back. My headphones got, were off my head maybe a total of 10 minutes throughout the day. Um, I listened to three or four of those Dead Mouse sets on the radio service that I subscribe to on Mixcloud which is really dope. And then after I did that, I just listened to Spotify for a bit. Because Spotify is pretty freaking rad. That, like paying for stuff, paying for music, paying for artists that you get a lot of value out of, it's just totally worth it, you know what I mean? It, uh, it's nice to be able to afford it and contribute because... They give a lot. Once a week radio show, getting to listen to him experiment, mix in some tracks from his record label, some of his new tracks, some old tracks. It's just fun. 
to see what's going on in the mind of someone at that moment. And he has cool guest sets where he invites other DJs off his label and they'll spin for an hour or they'll do the guest set, the guest set at the end. It's just awesome. And it's wicked to work with because it's cyclical, repetitive, very beady. It just makes you want to keep working, keep working on a specific pace, on a specific face, space, pace, Space race. Space race in the face waste. <laughs> Something like that, okay? I just finished watching a Matt video. What's that guy's name? I always forget his name because I haven't been watching him regularly now. Matt. Matt, what is your name, Matt? Matt Christensen. Matt Christensen talking about a 60 Minutes interview with Susan Wiki and this old bag. And they're talking about censorship and a whole bunch of stuff. And it's so crazy how uncomfortable Susan Wiki looks because you got to bullshit and lie. You know, you, you really see people's cognitive dissonance on the camera when they're asked questions or something that A, they either need to lie to or B, that blindside them. There was this really funny video that Chris sent me of this guy who went to a Jeremy Corbyn rally. He said that I think Boris Johnson said a bunch of anti-Semitic stuff. And then at the end, he switches it up and he's like, actually, no, your guy said that. Jeremy Corbyn said that. And then people just start justifying why he possibly could have said something so abhorrent. And it's just <clears throat> crazy to see the facial expressions on these people's faces and just trying to be like, well, no, there's no way he actually understood what he was doing. He must not have understood. He's obviously made a mistake. I can't imagine he would say something like this or what have you. And it's like, yes, because this is the power of telling yourself a story about something. Be inaccurately. How inaccurate could you be when someone is that outward about the things that they think about certain groups of people? Let's get real here, guys. <laughs> really. I've been seeing a lot of baby Yoda around. I think that's from the Mandalorian, if I am not mistaken. And I actually pulled an article to read about this baby Yoda thing because I thought it would be interesting. So let's just kick it off and jump right into an article, okay? All right, guys. You ready? Buckle up. <clears throat> Why do we love Baby Yoda? This is a Psychology Today article. As per usual, I will put the link of the article in the description for you. Okay. Oh, I just need a pen quick here. Aha. Let's see. Um, sorry. I just thought of something and I want to make a note. All right. Why do we love Baby Yoda? First of all, I haven't seen the show, but I've seen the memes of Baby Yoda and they're all adorable. Baby Yoda is so cute, holding a itty bit of with a cup of tea or whatever the heck it is. Baby Yoda giving himself permission to enjoy his broth. All right, that's that's broth, not tea. My my apologies. Let's do it. Baby Yoda helps us make sense of a valuable part of ourselves. Because we love things that are so cute. First of all, human shit is just super cute. But cute things, oh my god. Cute is my weakness, okay? Oh, so cute. Cute. It's all about being cute. 
All right, let me start this for fuck's sake. Even if you haven't subscribed to Disney Plus and witnessed the phenomena that is The Mandalorian, it is almost impossible to miss the sudden presence of the child or Baby Yoda in the social consciousness. So what is it about Baby Yoda that we, as often very disparate human beings, find so compelling? Well, this is an aside, this is me. Just looking at it, it's the big ears, the little face, the huge eyes. Oh, it's just so cute. Well, he's cute, of course, unbelievably, nay, painfully cute. His appearance was no doubt market research to make sure that he was the very cutest he could possibly be, but it goes deeper than his mere cuteness. Baby Yoda taps into something profoundly human. Though he is technically alien, the audience gets to bear witness to what it is to be small and seemingly powerless in a world that is bent on your destruction. While most viewers' life experience is less mortally perilous, it can often feel just the same. In Baby Yoda, the viewer sees the archetype of the child, and on some level, perhaps they get a glimpse of their own inner child. While people have very different experiences of their own inner children, some want to push this away or pretend it isn't there, because child parts is are seen as weak or unhelpful. It is impossible to feel anything other than protective of Baby Yoda. What viewers discover, of course, is that this 50-year-old child is not helpless at all. Rather, he is powerful, more powerful than a great Mandalorian warrior. And just as baby Yoda has, his, has this strength, so do all of our own inner children. These are not weak or useless parts of ourselves. They are both, but they are parts both precious and strong, just like baby Yoda. If viewers can begin to imagine a lovable baby Yoda living inside of their mind rather than imagining their inner child being an unwanted burden, they can begin to shift their perspective of what it means to have a relationship with this part of themselves. Reality is catching up with me, fighting... What was that line from that song? <sighs> Losing my inner child, I'm fighting for a custody or something like that. But that's that's really what it is. Like your whole life, for me, I will fight for the custody of my inner child till the day that I die. I feel like I'm very well connected to this part of myself. You know, I um, my immaturity and my my wonderlust and the things that I I love have a very child like I have a very childlike way of expressing the way that I love things. And I hope that never goes away. You know what I mean? It's part of what keeps me dipping into that fountain of youth is that a little bit of that fountain just exists in me because I am totally cool being immature and being childish and expressing in childish ways sometimes. And uh, it is what it is. You got to have a good relationship with that inner child. You know what I mean? Nurture it and take care of it and let it come out and have fun sometimes. Play, play. Even adults need playtime, because if you don't have playtime, you're just going to be one of those obnoxious adults that nobody likes, who thinks they're super grown up and have all the answers and blah, 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 boring, boring, blah, 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 blah. It is so endearing <clears throat> to see people who get older still have just that little bit of immaturity or that little childlike twinkle in their eye. They're enthusiastic about things. They have a they have a different life energy about them. And I consider those people very, you know, kindred spirits. I like that stuff. So I think it's cute that they took it and they made it, oh, well, we see 
aspects of baby Yoda in ourselves um, because it, the, the reminder of the archetype of the child that we see when we watch it. I mean, I shouldn't say we because I've never watched the show, but you know what I mean. Let's continue. This understanding of our connection to baby Yoda offers an opportunity for viewers to harness the power of therapeutic fan fiction to rewrite the narrative of their life experience. When feeling hurt or vulnerable, instead of immediately pushing away that part of themselves, fans can ask themselves, what does their internal baby Yoda want to do in this situation? I mean, this is cute. Um, it's a great way for somebody, I guess, to kind of think in terms of baby Yoda, I guess, or you could just say, what would I do in this situation and whatever, but okay. I, I can't imagine people are thinking like that when they're watching the show, right? They're kind of just immersed in the experience of this character who they're out to destroy or whatever. But I do digress. Does he want to use his bit of the force and work through it and then take plenty of rest afterwards? Or is it perhaps time to ask for the help of a Mandalorian in our own lives who can assist us on the journey? Does baby Yoda want to play with a tiny ball or sip a cup of broth? And if so, can we accept that reality and allow this play in contentment and without questioning its motives? Baby Yoda invites viewers to have more compassion for ourselves and to consider the truth that within each of us lives a precious child who is too cute for words and is sometimes in need of a metaphorical protective bassinet, a Mandalorian, and a hot cup of broth. Amen. Totally. I like where the article took everything. Connect with your inner child. <clears throat> you know, enjoy. Don't get into this stuffy adult mode where you're just boring and you think you know everything and you can't have a little fun and your eyes don't light up when you get something new or when you discover something new or what have you, you know? It's just too fun of an experience to be a human being. Like, when shit happens, when it's good or bad... You just got to lean right into it. You know what I mean? Lean right in. When you're super happy about something, lean right into that happy. Lean right in. Be excited. Ride the waves that you're inevitably going to be forced to throughout your life. When you're sad, you're allowed to be. When things are sad, you're allowed to be sad. When things are happy, you're allowed to be happy. And anything in between those two ends of the spectrum, okay? Ride them waves, girlfriend, ride them, because who knows how many times they're going to come and crash against your rock walls and stuff. Just got to do it, you know? But I do got to say, I have an affinity for very cute things with big, big eyes like that. And look at his adorable, big, floppy ears. How cute is this little baby Yoda? absolutely adorable sipping on his bowl of broth like that it is just too cute i haven't heard much about the show i know i have a couple friends watching it at the moment watching it at the moment and i mean i've heard mixed reviews on it but it's all good let's see what else we got here Navigating narcissism. Oh, this sounds like something I need to read for my own sake. Navigating narcissism, giving our clients a compass, psychoeducation for partners and antagonistic and high conflict individuals. Mm, my fucking favorite. Antagonistic and high conflict. Ugh. Conflict for the sake of conflict is just stupid. 
If there's a reason to have a discussion, have it. But if you're getting mad over stupid shit and extending an argument over that, you just have underlying shit that you're not dealing with, my friend. Get your shit together, okay? Deal with the actual thing instead of letting it manifest in all these ways that are unpleasant and just not fun to deal with for people. F off. <coughs> Alrighty. <coughs> If I have learned anything from being on a sort of grassroots book tour for the past few months from a new book, Don't You Know Who I Am? It is that the world needs more information on narcissism, toxic relationships, difficult people, and what to do about this issue at both the personal and societal level. It is in this way that the mental health profession has in many ways missed the plot. In the obsession to not diagnose someone we have never met, most clinicians still come at mental health advisement from a feel-good place of second chances, forgiveness, and a hopefulness that lacks any empirical proof. Calling someone's behavior narcissistic is not diagnostic. It is descriptive. Interestingly, we have no problem labeling behavior as inappropriate, stubborn, anxious, or any number of other adjectives. But something about this word narcissism has become a third rail in mental health. When I was in graduate school and through my postdoctoral fellowship and licensure examination, we would be given written cases. These cases would provide information about a patient, real or fake, and based on the information provided, we were asked to render a diagnosis and to provide substantiation of the diagnosis. In these cases, I had obviously never met the person. In some cases, the person was dead. And I'm guessing if I squared off against my supervisor or professor and said, nah, I never met this person, I can't render a diagnosis, it wouldn't be right, that I probably would not be Dr. Romani Darvasula at this time. We take the evidence and create a formulation, and we retain some dynamism and flexibility that as more evidence emerges, that the hypothesis be shifted. Many clinicians might argue the subjective experience of a client coming into a therapy room and describing another person is tainted, biased, and only one person's perspective. Yep, that is what it is supposed to be. Carl Rogers' work comes to mind. So if a client comes in and, for example, describes a partner who lacks empathy, is often invalidating, deceitful, behaves in an entitled manner, can be vindictive, chronically needs validation, denies the client's reality, and prone to rage in the face of frustration, what would your hypothesis be? If they carefully detail this relational experience, provide detailed recollection of episodes and a history of this conduct in the relationship, and share their own personal feelings and responses, confusion, anxiety, depression, self-doubt, I'm willing to float the hypothesis that the person they are describing is narcissistic, and sometimes the unfortunate client, so accustomed to being doubted, will even pull up emails, texts, and recordings to substantiate their experience. If I'm not willing to, re to consider the client's story, then what? Do we write our clients off prone to exaggeration and embellishment or as a, or as a downright liar? Not a great perspective from which to view a client. Many therapists would stay focused only on the subjective experience of the client with little attempt to educate the client on the possibility that the pattern being evinced by the partner may be suggested, 
suggestive sorry, of an antagonistic, high-conflict, narcissistic style. And yet the psychoeducation about narcissism may be the most important part of the treatment. Many clients just don't know how narcissistic patterns work. They often fall into attribution biases and blame themselves, and it may be that very attributional style which made them vulnerable. Anyone who has read the literature on treatment of narcissistic personality knows that it is pretty bleak, and except for a handful of case reports and small sample studies conducted on rarefied samples, there is little evidence of significant change. The other sacred canon in therapy is the belief that therapists should never give advice or guidance. It is a debatable point, but bottom line, psychoeducation is not advice, it is information. In addition, there are myriad cultural factors at play around courtship, marriage, and the incentivization of narcissistic patterns in cultures characteristic Oh my god, I can't even. In cultures characterized by male hegemonies, authoritarianism, patriarchy, stratification, and economic disparity. From a cultural competence perspective, this must also be understood so the conversation can be had in a way that is respectful but also recognizes that abuse is abuse, regardless of cultural sign off. Simple illumination of these issues while simultaneously creating a safe space for sharing the feelings evoked by this relationship can be the most humane thing we can do in the realm of mental health. If you don't like a label, then use a term that feels nicer, antagonistic, high conflict, difficult. Or if you have time to burn, just use the entire litany of adjectives every time. Your empathy-lacking, invalidating, lying, entitled, vindictive, validating-seeking, reality-denying, rageful, poorly-regulated partner. That gets exhausting after a while. (laughs) In addressing narcissistic abuse in my practice, brutal, from-the-hip clarity works. Many people have endured these abusive relationships for years and decades, and many are stuck due to children and finances. These are often intergenerational patterns, and understanding these vulnerabilities can provide invaluable insight and awareness that can protect individuals who are enduring these relationships in the future. Many narcissistically abusive relationships are not physically violent or manifest other above-the-line behavior that gets the notice of judicial or criminal justice systems. It ends up looking like a hybrid of low-grade post-traumatic symptomatology plus anxiety plus hopelessness plus ruminative self-doubt. And because it is not an articulated phenomenon and there are no institutional structures to help, these clients come to therapy as their only line of protection and assistance. Yes, it is dismissive to suggest that someone's behavior cannot improve. And yet, by the time a client who has endured this type of psychological abuse shows up in a therapist's office, trust me, they have tried other therapists, couples therapy, psychics, coaches, prayer, and read books, blogs, and watched countless videos. Patterns such as narcissism, which are characterized by diminished self-reflective capacity and diminished insight, are not amenable to change. Radical acceptance and realistic expectations are about the only way anyone can safely ford these waters and avoid a lifetime avoid a lifetime of disappointment. I recognize that this may not be a popular stance in the existing canon of psychotherapy, but sometimes all people need is a map and a compass, and someone to give them gentle guidance on how to use them. Here's the deal that I don't understand. 
If a therapist is not going to give advice based on information that they are able to pull out of you or coax out of you based on asking you specific questions and paying attention to the way you're answering them, what else are you supposed to do? I mean, I'm of the mind that your friends should tell you to get your shit together if you're behaving in a way that is not good for you. If somebody cares for your well-being, they're going to provide you with prescriptions and advice to improve your situation because clearly you didn't come up with the fucking solution or the the plan to ameliorate or make better the issue on your own. So what are you supposed to do when you go to a professional? I feel like I would expect to get some advice that doesn't mean you're going to follow it. But as a professional who's able to see things that maybe the normal person could not see, it would be incredibly helpful to act as a sort of compass. You know, you want to be able to point people to the true north. The true north meaning the <coughs> the pinnacle, the peak of their well-being. You're supposed to act as a, a compass of a sort when you're a friend to somebody. Never mind a a therapist, you know? So I just, it's weird to me that anybody would get offended by this kind of thing. Um, narcissistic personality disorder is, I don't even think it's a disorder personally. I don't, I don't know. We call it a disorder because we see norms and then people act outside of those norms and we don't like those things. But I just think that these things statistically work out to be the way they are because it's just the way they are. You know what I mean? It's just, Oh, here's an article for next time. Historical and clinical roots of narcissistic personality, but not today. Maybe not today. Maybe we'll have to do that another one, another day. Posted November 12, 2019. Okay, not very old either. I think it's always good to be able to tell someone when certain behavior of theirs is those things that she mentioned. You know what I mean? The Let me read it. Your empathy lacking, invalidating, lying, entitled, vindictive, validating, seeking, reality denying, rageful, poorly regulated partner. These are things that should be pointed out to people because people who are like this really drain energy from the people around them and just kind of push them down and make them feel like what they have to say is not valid at all because they're just they're just continuously validating themselves and the things that they think. And it really is such a reality-denying, poorly regulated person who behaves like this. If you can't self-reflect, that's your number one problem. You're just not going to be the kind of person who's going to be fun to have in a group. You know what I mean? And people are great at pretending when they need to. But when it comes down to actually showing what kind of person you are, person you are, person you are, well, you see this kind of shit, you know what I mean? Over time, you cannot deny the person that you are. People pick up on your patterns and they see the way that you've behaved and it's easy to put things together once it's been a year or two and you've seen someone behave in certain situations. So, But I am always of the mind that insight and awareness, which you can't always get on your own, that's why I always stress, have good friends, have people who have the fucking balls to tell you you're being a freaking asshole. Because, hey, if your friends are being assholes, you're supposed to tell them too. 
We're supposed to be each other's checks and balances. That's why small tribes are a lot better than these large-ass countries that we're trying to run in the way that we're trying to run them. You can't expect people to be honest and play the game honestly the larger the group is and the more potential there is for exploitation. You know, it's just, it's just how it goes. I might actually have time for one more. Let's read this narcissistic personality. One was it long? Let's see. No, it's not too bad. All right. Historical and clinical roots of narcissistic personality. The evolution of narcissism is wrought with multiple meanings and conceptions. This is by Dr. Daniel J. Winnerick, PhD, my friends. Narcissistic personality disorder is a favorite of skeptics, laypersons, clinicians, and researchers alike. In discussing NPD, it makes sense to start with some Greek mythology. The name Narcissus comes from an ancient Greek myth about a fellow called Narcissus who was so in love with his own image that he would stare at his reflection in a body of water constantly. He was so obsessed he fell in and died. Narcissus's obsession with his own good looks was his downfall, and this very dynamic remains central to the construct of NPD today. Freudian View Narcissism, or self-love as a clinical construct relevant for understanding and treating psychopathology, has its roots in Freudian theory, with Freud viewing pathological, excessive introversion as essentially a problem of narcissism. For Freud, individuals with narcissistic problems had not adaptively coped with their libido and sex drive, which should be turning outwards onto the world and ultimately a mate. Freudian narcissists turned their libido inwards and focused their attention on the self. Narcissism has a rich history in psychoanalysis, albeit with multiple evolving meanings. Self-psychology perspective For example, the well-known founder of Self-Psychology School of Psychoanalysis, Kohut, was well-known for his conceptualization and therapeutic approach in conducting psychotherapy with narcissistic patients. Narcissistic patients were viewed in psychoanalysis for a long time as untreatable because they could develop a positive transference with their analyst, a positive therapeutic alliance. However, Kohut viewed their pathology as having early developmental roots in connection to parental failures. Kohut believed that narcissistic patients could be treated with the technique he coined mirroring. Mirroring involves reflecting to the patient their emotional and ideational experience in a validating, accepting, contained way. In other words, mirroring is what good enough parents generally do automatically with infants, children, and beyond. Individuals with narcissistic pathology in this model did not receive this mirroring growing up. Accordingly for Kahut, the therapist provides a positive mirror to strengthen and validate a fractured self. Kohut's mirroring can reasonably be conceptualized as providing a corrective relational emotional experience for patients. (coughs) Kernberg's view of severe personality disorders. More recently, Kernberg has posited that narcissistic personality disorder represents a very severe personality disorder that involves deep-seated, primitive, and aggressive hunger for love, admiration, as well as a need for the destruction of others. Hmm. Gosh, that seems so ridiculously familiar, listening to that. Blatt's narcissistic subtypes. Let me have a sip of my coffee, kids. How you holding up? Good morning, club. I hope you're doing good. Let's finish this last bit. Sidney Black conceptualized two subtypes of the narcissistic personality, the deflated narcissist and the grandiose narcissist. 
the deflated narcissist projects an outward image of power and strength but feels weak and small on the inside and probably often is weak and small. This is little man syndrome. (laughs) The grandiose narcissist projects outward arrogance and confidence which matches their internal sense of superiority and greatness. This is a brief overview of some of the clinical and historical views on the narcissistic personality, which differs from DSM narcissistic personality disorder, which will be discussed in a future blog post. Stay tuned. (laughs) Stuff is super interesting, right? Like I read some of it and I'm like, oh, there's certainly aspects of narcissism that I have. I have some narcissistic tendencies and uh, I mean... I'm not like aggressively hungry for love or anything, but I definitely would say that I aggressively love myself (laughs) and I really do. And I, I don't think, I don't think that is a bad thing. I think what matters is how it is expressed. It's always going to matter how that self love is expressed when you're with other people and when you're just out in the world and how that affects the way that you treat other people. That's where you really see the difference, right? Because you can think you're better than people and you can think that you're really awesome, but you can still be nice to people and want to help them and care for them too. So I guess that wouldn't necessarily make you a narcissist, but I think that um, I feel like, you know, there's just... uh, some things I didn't even I'm trailing off now. Um, but those were the three articles for this morning. So those will be in the description for you. Last night, for the first time in a long time, actually, I recorded a podcast with Eric and Mike from the Mono E Mono podcast who are a couple of friends of mine. Um, Eric, I've known longer. Mike, I've met through Eric. But we had a nice little chat. We talked about the Don Cherry thing. We touched a little bit on customer service. We talked about other stuff. I, there's just so many things we could have talked about. But it was a little over 90 minutes. So um, we figured we, we would wrap it up because it was getting a little late for me. I was up later than usual trying to do that. So I'm just going to wait for him to release it and once he releases it I will rip it off him and I will be putting that on here as a bonus episode so I will be featured on there you guys should check them out if you want to do that I'll put links in the description I imagine that will be released sometime today So that should be really fun. First time I actually had a conversation with Mike, which was super fun because we have been texting back and forth. Actually, let me do that right now. We have this very good morning report. Um, Good morning, cunty McCutie face. And there it is. There the frick it is. You know what I mean? Since you got up so early, you're an honorary 80-year-old. I mean, I guess I've been an honorary 80-year-old for a long time, Mr. Donkey, because I am up at 4.30 almost every day. Although this week, I have been sleeping in until about 5. So that's kind of a thing right now, um, making sure I get the sleep I need and the rest I need. But especially because I went to bed at midnight and it was a bit of a late night. 
I had to, um, you know, do the thing. You have to do the thing. You got to do the responsible thing and you got to make sure you get enough sleep, even if that means you don't get to thought cast for as long as you want to or whatever. But you know what I've realized is because I'm not keeping in touch with things, the things that I have to talk about are limited to just the psychology stuff, which doesn't bother me because that is my main interest and it's my favorite. And it just touches a range of issues that all of us are going to experience in our lives. You know, I've never... The, the more I learn about psychology and the more I read articles and the more I read the, the books I have here and the more I realize that nothing helps you navigate more, nothing helps you navigate better than understanding how people work because your whole world and from the moment you're, you come into consciousness on this planet to the moment you leave, you're, you have to deal with people forever. You want something, you got to get it from people. You want help, you got to ask people for it. You know what I mean? It's just, it makes sense to try and understand people as much as possible so you can maximize the things that you can get and also minimize or assuage the potential for problems to occur because you understand what you're dealing with when you can pick out a few traits here or there and make an inference based on those things. And now you just avoided a minefield or you know to walk around it or you know that you're going to walk into it, but you can, you know, suit up and try and prevent yourself from dealing all the damage. Like there's just so many tools that you get to help you negotiate with your reality when you're able to psychologically understand what's happening or at least apply a psychological perspective and, and be compassionate because we understand there's causes and effects to things and experience makes a person this, this way or that. And it's just it just makes it a lot better to have that kind of an education to get shit done. You know what I mean? It's good to observe your environment. It's good to be aware of it as much as possible. And people are probably what you have to worry about the most. Let's be real, right? Uh-huh. So it's just my thing. And it's always going to be my thing. And we're all learning so much more every day. Just the amount of information that we're getting is exponentially increasing 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 as our capabilities to collect that data increase and our capabilities to retrieve that data and do further testing increases it's just going to get crazier and there's so much information I'm aware of well I should say not aware of but I'm aware that I'm not aware of so much more information than I am aware of so there's just an infinite keg for me to tap onto to get that information. You know what? I didn't do this morning. I'm such a jerk. I actually did not say good morning to anybody. Good morning. I'm the good morning text person. I like to make sure I say good morning. Oh, here's Brian. Good morning, Brian. <laughs> Boo. Ghost heart. Oh, hi. Oh boy. Good morning, lovely. Sorry, this is incredibly rude, but this is what you get, you know what I mean? This is how it goes. I just like to keep it real. Sometimes I get distracted and stuff, and that's why I don't have a professional podcast, my friends, because I just like to chill and take it easy. 
Okay, I just like to chill, chill and take it easy, and I don't want to be doing no fake shit over here. We all text, we all get a little distracted, and I just remembered, oh shit, it's really important, my friends, ah, how did I forget about them? What have I done here? Hmm? Listen, I've had a people, had a people of couple, <laughs> a couple of people complain to me about how the holiday season is so stressful. Listen, fuck faces. Let me tell you something about the holiday season. If you are a person who gets stressed out this time of year and are in a constant state of stress because of the holidays, you're doing it all wrong. If you understand that it comes around the same time every single year, that affords you the ability to plan ahead, buy shit online, do all that stuff in, you could do it in the last couple weeks of November and you'll be good to go. But don't come to me and complain about how the holidays are stressful. Bitch, you have a whole year to plan if you need it. Don't come to me like, oh God, this, oh God, that. You can literally find anything online. You can go to the store if you need to. And if you don't want to go, you don't have to go because everybody has an online store. So what are you stressed out about? Hmm? Oh, you got to cook a big dinner? So what? Nobody's making you do that, okay? Nobody is making you do it. And yeah, those things are going to come with, with stress anyways. So a lot of people are really great who do it every year and have gotten used to it of just getting shit done and just letting the stress exist there. And they just kind of exist in the space of stress. They get the dinner cooked. They get it out. It's delicious. It's amazing. They kicked ass. A successful year has been done once again. But maybe it's just in the beginning. Maybe people just have a little bit of a freak out or something. I don't know. But time is available should you use it wisely. And the ability to plan is everything. I was telling Eric yesterday, my, my boss at my office job, one thing that he always says to me in the beginning, because he runs a lot of stuff. So people will come into the office in a panic, just looking for him. Like, I need to talk to him right now. Where is he? Well, he runs a business, sir. And I understand that he's on the strata council, but you have to book an appointment. The guy has shit to do. He is busy. He is running his own business. Sorry, you have your problem. Okay. And then I'll let him know. My boss is like, Amy, a failure to plan on somebody else's part does not constitute an emergency on mine. And no truer words have ever been spoken. It's so true. It's so funny how people will have an emergency or something will happen to them. And they think that because it's happened to them, it is now everybody else's collective emergency. Nah, dude, come on. This is not how it works. You have to suffer the consequences of failing to plan when you've had all this time to do so. And emergencies certainly do happen. That is correct. But usually, usually in, in the situation that I'm in, in the context that I'm talking about, it's nothing that could not have been planned for ahead of time. And it's something that has been left to the last minute. And you know what? Shit happens sometimes. Shit happens. I've never, like, when I was younger, I used to react in a very panicked sort of way. But now shit happens. I'm like, all right. No point in me freaking out. It's just going to make the whole ordeal difficult for everybody. You want to be the kind of person who does not add additional pressure into comp complicating or emergency or situations that would make the average person tense. You just 
don't want to be that person. So I try to keep it chill and just relax. And yes, things suck sometimes, but we just got to get through this moment. So let's just calm our tits, put our dumb shit aside and our whatever. Understand you have a flight or fight or flight response that occurs in emergency situations. Get acquainted with that and try to calm it. Okay? Unless you're in a fire or something, then obviously different. But it's just funny that the little things people freak out over. And I'm not saying I don't. I definitely, definitely do. I'm included in that. Like I said, I freaked out over a UPS lady on Friday, Thursday last week. Because she, like, I felt like she was yelling at me. And I was just like, oh my God. Why are you yelling? I'm just trying to find a way to to get to you so I can get my package. (laughs) Oh, being a human being is quite an interesting ordeal. You know what I mean? very interesting I like to think that I have moments in time where I understand what's going on but in the preceding moment I am just reminded once more of yo none of us know what the hell's going on we're just kind of living day to day and we're, we're doing it and we're managing and because it happens many days in a row we now think we're successful at it when really I mean you just don't know you know You just don't know. You don't know how you're going to react to certain stimuli or what have you. It's just going to be what it is. All right? That's it. And it's all good. I found another article. I'm not going to read this today, but it's called Not All Masculinity is Toxic. Why Communication in the Bedroom Often Fails. That's going to be a great one. I love these articles. I always find something new that I can reflect on about myself or other people that I've been involved with. And it's just, it helps. Having insight really, really helps. It helps assuage a lot of feelings and things that you don't need to think about and waste brain space on. Because remember, that stuff is finite. You don't have all the room in your mind to store everything, nor do you have the, the memory capacity or the processing capacity to just know everything all the time and remember everything all the time. So sometimes it's nice to have a reminder. It's nice to have things reinforced. It's necessary to, if you want to learn anything and take anything from it. And well, that's just how the cookie crumbles, baby boys. Anyway, it's Monday. It's a fresh start to the week. And uh, I think that you should have a really great one. I hope you kick ass today. Don't let the fact that it's Monday bring you down. It's just a day, yo. It's just a day, okay? It's a day. It's a good one. Fresh starts, new beginnings. So good. And that's how it goes. Big, big kisses. Links for stuff in the description, okay? Big kiss. Bye!